welcome to Champagne and Murder, please. I am your host, Brittany. I am so excited that you're here, and hopefully I can entertain you today. Um, today I am drinking a La Marca Prosecco sparkling wine I found at Target for like 15 bucks. It's crisp and refreshing with lively bubbles, bright flavors of green apples, sweet citrus, and tropical fruit. You can enjoy it on its own with any meal or in mimosas or cocktails. And it's got an easy-to-open twist and pop cork, so that I liked. Um, how have you guys been? I hope I hope you guys have been good. And I hope if anything bad has been happening that it ends soon and everything turns around. Um, today I have a couple stories for you. They One's a crime story and one's a haunted story. Um, I don't know why I paired them together. I just wanted to do them. <laughs> so... Without further ado, how about we get into it? So, my first story for you today is from the 1960s in England. It's about a girl named Mary Bell. So, Mary Flora Bell was born in England May 26, 1957. Her mother, Elizabeth Betty Bell, was a well-known sex worker. She was often out working and not at home. She traveled most often to Glasgow for work, and she would leave her children in the care of their father. Well, if he was around. Mary was Betty's second child, and she had her when she was just 17. And Mary's biological father's identity is actually unknown, but for most of her life, she was led to believe that William Billy Bell was her father. Billy was a violent alcoholic and habitual criminal with an arrest record that included armed robbery. Mary was an unwanted and neglected child, and according to her aunt, Issa McCricket, within minutes of Mary being born, said that her mother had resisted hospital staff as they tried to place Mary in her arms, even shouting, quote, take that thing away from me, end quote. How nice. From the time Mary was a baby until well into childhood, she frequently suffered from injuries in household accidents while alone with her mother. Hmm which led most of her other family to believe that either Betty was deliberately negligent or that she was intentionally attempting to harm or kill Mary. In one occasion, or on one occasion, in 1960, Betty dropped Mary from the first floor window, and on another occasion, she fed Mary a bunch of sleeping pills. Sounds like mother of the year. She also knowingly sold her daughter to a mentally unstable woman, who had been unable to have her own children, resulting in her older sister Catherine having to travel alone across the new across Newcastle to rescue Mary from this woman and return her to Betty. Which I would have been like, well, how about you just stay with me? Mary's other family members tried and failed many times to get Betty to relinquish Mary to them. Betty, being a dominatrix, is allegedly is alleged to have begun allowing and or encouraging several of her own clients to sexually abuse Mary in sadomasochistic sessions by the mid-1960s. At home and at school, Mary exhibited many signs of disturbed and unpredictable behavior, which included sudden mood swings and chronic bedwetting. She often fought with other children, both boys and girls, and she even attempted to strangle or suffocate her classmates and playmates on several occasions. She attempted once to block the trachea of a young girl by filling her mouth and throat with sand. 
and as you can imagine, these behaviors made many of the other children reluctant to hang out with Mary, who often spent her time with Norma Joyce Bell, the 13-year-old daughter of the next-door neighbor, and although they have the same last name, they were not related. According to a classmate at Deverell Road Junior High School, by the year 1968, she and her peers had become accustomed to Mary's sudden and marked changes in behavior. And when she started exhibiting distressful mannerisms that included shaking her head and, a, and forming a steely gaze, they knew she was about to become violent, and the focus of her steely stare is who she would attack. May 11, 1968 was a Saturday, a th and three-year-old a three-year-old boy was found wandering, dazed and bleeding, near St. Margaret's Road in Scottswood. The child would later inform the police that he had been playing with Mary and Norma on top of an abandoned air raid shelter when he was pushed seven feet from the roof and landed on the ground, which is how he got the laceration on his head. He wasn't sure, however, which of the girls had pushed him. That same evening, the parents of three small girls contacted the police to complain that both Mary and Norma tried to strangle their children as they were playing in the sand pit. Also that night, the police interviewed both Mary and Norma about these incidents. Both girls denied they pushed the little boy, claiming that they had come upon the boy on the ground bleeding heavily from a head wound. When questioned about the three little girls, Mary denied any knowledge of the incident. However, Norma admitted Mary had tried to quote-unquote throttle each of the girls, stating, quote, Mary went to one of the girls and said, What happens if I choke someone? Do they die? Mary put both hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat, and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up to Mary and did the same thing to her. End quote. Police notified the local authorities of the incidents and Mary's violent nature, but due to their age, both girls received a warning and no further steps were taken. In the 1960s, Newcastle-upon-Tyne was experiencing a significant urban renewal. Many inner boroughs of the city saw the Victorian-era slums demolished so more modern houses and flats could be constructed. But many families still lived in the buildings that had been slated for demolition because they were waiting on rehousing by the council. But the local children frequently played in or around the derelict houses and on the rubble that was strewn across the land that had been raised and partially cleared by construction crews. One of these areas was a large expanse of waste ground that was located close to a railway line known as, to the locals as, quote, Tin Lizzie, end quote, and it ran parallel to St. Margaret's Road. The day before her 11th birthday, Mary strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in an upstairs bedroom of one of the derelict houses located at 85 St. Margaret's Road. It is believed that she committed this crime all on her own. Brown's body was found by three kids around 3.30 p.m. He was lying on his back with his arms stretched above his head. Aside from the specks of blood and foam around his mouth, there were no other visible signs of violence upon his body. A local workman named John Hall soon arrived on the scene, and he attempted to perform CPR, but he was too late. As he was performing CPR, Mary and Norma appeared at the doorway of the bedroom. Both were quickly taken out of the house. The two knocked on the door of, Mar of Martin's aunt, Rita Finley, and told her, quote, One of your sister's barns has just been in an accident. We think it's Martin, but we can't tell because there's blood all over him. 
end quote. That's, I don't know, that, to me that's weird. That's rude. An autopsy was performed the next day by Bernard Knight. He was unable to find any signs of violence on Martin's body, and so he was un unable to determine the child's cause of death, although he was unable to discount the investigator's theory that the child had died of poisoning due to swallowing pills. An inquest from, the June, 7th, from June 7th returned an open verdict. On Mary's 11th birthday, she and Norma broke into and vandalized a nursery in nearby Woodland Crescent. They entered the property by peeling tiles off the slate roof. They tore up books, upturned desks, and smeared ink and paint all around the property before they left. The next day, staff discovered the break-in and vandalism and called police, who also discovered four different notes that claimed responsibility for Martin Brown's murder. One of the notes said, quote, I murder so that I may come back, end quote. Another read, quote, we did murder Martin Brown, fuck off you bastard, end quote. A third note simply said, fuck off, we murder, but fuck was spelled with an H. Watch out, Fanny, and F, other F word that I'm not going to say, end quote. The final note was the most complex, reading, quote, you are mice. Why? Because we murdered Martin Brown. You bet, it's B-E-T-E, -E. look out, there are murders about by Fanny and all, another F word I'm not going to say, you screws, end quote. The police dismissed this incident as a tasteless and childish prank. On May 29th, shortly before Martin's funeral in a game of chicken, both girls went to his mother's house asking to see her son. And when June Brown said they couldn't see him because he was dead, Mary replied, quote, Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin, end quote. Okay, psychopath. In the afternoon of July 31st, 1968, three-year-old Brian Howe was last seen outside his house playing with a sibling, the family dog, Mary, and Norma. When he hadn't returned later that afternoon, his concerned family and neighbors all searched the streets but couldn't find him. At 11.10 p.m., a search party had had, that had been formed discovered Brian's body between two large concrete box blocks on the tin Lizzie. The first policeman on the scene noted that a, quote, deliberate but feeble, end quote, attempt had been made to hide Brian's body, which had been covered in clumps of grass and weeds. Cyanosis was evident on Brian's lips, and several bruises and scratches were on his neck. And there was a pair of broken scissors laying close to his feet. And in case you don't know what cyanosis is, it's a bluish skin color due to decreased amounts of oxygen. Just in case you were like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> now, the coroner would conclude that Brian had died from strangulation and that he had been dead for up to seven and a half hours before his body had been found. It was evident that the killer, whoever they were, had pinched Brian's nose closed with one hand while they gripped his throat with the other. There were numerous puncture wounds on Brian's legs that had been inflicted before he had died. There had been sections of his hair that had been cut off. His genitals had been partially mutilated, and there had been a crude attempt to carve the letter M into his stomach. The relatively small amount of force used to murder Brian led the coroner to believe that his killer had been another child. There were numerous gray and maroon fibers found on Brian's clothing and shoes. The fibers had not come from anything that had been on, in Brian's home, and they had to have been transferred to Brian's clothing by his killer or killers. Brian's body being discovered triggered a large-scale manhunt. There were over 100 detectives from across Northumberland assigned to the investigation. 
and more than 1,200 children had been questioned with regard to their whereabouts by August 2nd. Mary and Norma were questioned on August 1st, and witnesses had informed investigators that they had been seen playing with Brian shortly before he was believed to have died. In her initial interview, Norma seemed to be excitable, but Mary was more observant and taciturn. Both girls were evasive and contradictory in their initial statements, but they freely admitted playing with Brian on the day that he died, but they said they hadn't seen him after lunchtime. The following day during questioning, Mary claimed she remembered seeing an eight-year-old local boy playing with Brian on July 31st, and that she had seen this boy hitting Brian. She continued to say she also remembered that the boy had been covered in grass and weeds as if he had been rolling in a field, and that he had a small pair of scissors. Mary then said, quote, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with them. One leg was broken or bent, end quote. This self-incriminating statement convinced Detective Chief Inspector James Dobson that Mary was actually the killer, since only the police knew about the broken scissors that had been found at the crime scene. Additionally, the local boy she had named was questioned, and it was discovered that he was at Newcastle International Airport on the afternoon of July 31st, with a plethora of witnesses able to corroborate his parents' claims. In the afternoon on August 4th, the parents of Norma Bell called the police, stating that their daughter wished to tell them what she knew about the death of Brian Howe. DCI Dobson went to their home. He formally cautioned Norma, then asked her what all she knew. Norma then told Dobson Mary had taken her to a, quote, spot on the tin Lizzie, end quote, at which point she was shown Brian's body. Mary then proceeded to demonstrate how she had strangled the boy. According to Norma, Mary had confessed to her she had enjoyed strangling the child before she told her how she had inflicted the scour marks on his stomach with a razor blade, which had been hidden at the crime scene, and told her about the broken scissors. Norma then led police to the crime scene and showed them the location of the razor blade. A drawing Norma had made of the wounds on Brian's abdomen matched those that had been described by the coroner. Mary then said, quote, The blocks, Norma, how a? And we went along the concrete blocks. Then Mary said to Brian, Lift up your neck. Just when she said that, there were some boys playing around and Lassie, Brian's dog, was barking. She had followed us down. Mary then said, Get away or I'll set the dog on you. The boys left then. Mary said again to Brian, Lift up your neck. End quote. Mary Bell was then paid a visit at her home in the early hours of August 5th. This time she was notably defensive when she was confronted with the discrepancies in her previous statement, informing detectives, quote, You're trying to brainwash me. I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. End quote. Later the same day, Norma was again questioned and this time she made a full statement in which she did admit to being present when Mary had strangled Brian. According to Norma, when the trio was alone on the tin Lizzie, Mary, quote, seemed to go all funny, end quote, pushing the boy into the grass and attempting to strangle him before telling her, quote, my hands are getting thick, take over, end quote. She had then run away from the scene, leaving Mary alone with Brian. A forensic examination of clothing owned by both girls revealed the gray fibers found on Brian's body were a precise match to a wool dress worn and owned by Mary, and the maroon fibers on Brian's shoes matched a skirt owned by Norma. Also, the same gray fibers were found on the body of Martin Brown. 
Brian Howe was buried in the local cemetery on August 7, 1968, in a ceremony that was attended by over 200 people. According to DCI Dobson, who was planning to arrest the girls later the same day, Mary had stood outside of the Howe household as Brian's coffin was brought from the home at the beginning of the funeral procession. Dobson later stated, quote, she stood there laughing, laughing and rubbing her hands. I thought, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one, end quote. Both of the girls were formally charged with the m- murder of Brian Howe at 8 p.m. that evening. In response to the charges, Mary replied, quote, that's all right by me, end quote. Norma had burst into tears and proclaimed, quote, I never, I'll pay you back for this, end quote. Under the watchful eye of an independent witness, Mary prepared a written statement which, in which she admitted to being present when Brian Howe was murdered, but insisted the murder had been committed by Norma. She also admitted she and Norma had broken into the Woodland Crescent Nursery the day after killing Martin Brown and defaced the property before they had written the notes police had found there. Shortly after their arrest, both girls underwent psychological evaluations. The results of those tests revealed that Norma was intellectually delayed and a submissive character who easily displayed emotion, whereas Mary was a bright and cunning character prone to sudden mood changes. Occasionally, Mary was willing to talk to investigators, but she would rapidly become sullen, introspective, and defensive in nature. The four psychiatrists, yes, four, that examined Mary concluded that although not suffering from a mental disorder, she did suffer from a psychopathic personality disorder. In the official report that was compiled for the Director of Public Prosecutions, David Westbury concluded, quote, Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial, ingratiation, manipulation, complaining, bullying, fight, flight, or violence, end quote. The trial for Mary and Norma for the murders of Brian Howe and Martin Brown began at Newcastle, and I'm going to say this wrong, Assizes, Assizes, on December 5th, 1968. Both of the girls were tried before Mr. Justice Cusack in a and a jury, and both girls pleaded not guilty to the charges. Mary was defended by Harvey Robert Robson QC, and Norma was resent, represented by R.P. Smith QC. On the first day of trial, against protests from both defense counsel, the trial judge waived the defendant's right to anonymity on account of their age, and so the media was allowed to publicize the names, ages, and photographs of both girls, who each sat along plainclothed female police officers in the center of the court, behind their legal representation, and within arm's reach of their families throughout the duration of the trial. Rudolph Lyons, QC, opened the case on behalf of the prosecution at 11.30 a.m. In an opening statement lasting six hours, Lyons told the jury they faced a, quote, unhappy and distressing, end quote, task due to the nature of the murders and the ages of the defendants. He outlined the prosecution's intention to illustrate the similarities between both of the murders, which indicated both of the boys had been murdered by the same killer or killers. Lyons outlined the circumstances surrounding both deaths and the evidence indicating the defendant's guilt. 
Lyons did concede in his opening statement that despite the age difference, Mary was the more dominant of the two girls, and he contended both of them had acted in unison and were equally culpable, and that they had killed both of the boys, quote, solely for the pleasure and excitement of murder, adding, both girls well knew what they did was wrong and what the results would be, end quote. Norma testified in her own defense on day five of the trial. She denied any responsibility in the actual murder of each boy, but did admit under cross-examination to having known Mary's penchant for violence and her history of attacking other children, and that the two had discussed attacking and killing small children of both genders. Lyons questioned as to whether Mary had demonstrated to her how children could be killed, and Norma nodded. She then conceded that as Mary began her attack on Brian, she had failed to alert a group of boys that had been playing in the area, saying she failed to do so as, quote, I did not know what was going to happen in the first place. She had stopped hurting him for a bit when the boys were near the concrete blocks, end quote. When questioned as to her role in the murder, Norma stated she had, quote, never touched the boy. Norma's testimony concluded on December 12th, and then Mary testified in her own defense. Mary's testimony lasted for almost four hours and concluded on December 13th. Testimony was briefly adjourned on one occasion when she began to cry in a policewoman's arms. She denied her co-defendant's accusations and insisted that although she had observed the body of Martin Brown at St. Margaret's Road, she herself never harmed the boy, and that she and Norma later asked the boy's mother to view his body as the two were, quote, daring each other and one of us did not want to be a chicken, end quote. Mary also conceded that she told the others that her knowledge of Martin's death could, quote, get Norma put straight away, end quote. When questioned in regards to Brian Howe's death, Mary claimed that Norma had been the one to strangle the boy as she herself, quote, was just standing and looking. I couldn't move. It was as if some glue was pulling us down, end quote. Mary alleged Norma had encouraged Brian to lay down if he wanted some sweets, telling him, quote, you've got to lie down for the lady to come with the sweets, end quote, before she proceeded to strangle him with her bare hands as she unsuccessfully tried to prevent the attack. Mary went on to say she could determine the level of force Norma has had exhibited because, quote, her fingertips and nails were going white, end quote. And again admitted she failed to inform the proper authorities of her knowledge of Norma's actions out of fear and a misguided sense of loyalty. So she is manipulative as fuck. Catherine, Norma's mother, testified that several months before the killing of Brian Howe, she and her husband had found Mary trying to strangle Norma's younger sister, Susan, and that she had only let her go after Norma's father punched Mary in the shoulder. Child psychiatrist Ian Fraser then testified that Norma's mental age was about eight years and ten months old, and that although her capacity of knowing right from wrong was limited, she was in fact capable of appreciating the criminality of the acts she had been accused of committing. On December 13th, Norma's defense counsel delivered his closing argument to the jury. He emphasized that although the girls were on trial together, there was no real evidence against his client, and the only evidence against Norma was Mary's accusations against her. He implored the jurors to suppress their feelings of outrage and malice and dispel any idea that, quote, both little girls, end quote, pay for the actions of one of them. Harvey Robson was up next to deliver his closing argument on behalf of Mary. 
He illustrated her broken childhood and dysfunctional family and the blur between fantasy and reality in her mind. He also referenced the testimony of David Westbury, who had testified on behalf of the defense. He had interviewed Mary on several occasions before the trial, and he had formed a quote-unquote definite view. The child suffered from a serious personality disorder, which he classified as, and this is a quote, retarded development of her mind, and that this had been caused by both genetic and environmental factors. This abnormality, according to Westbury, had impaired Mary's actual responsibility for her acts, referencing the notes that both of the girls had left in a nursery after the killing of Martin Brown. Robson stated the notes proved the crimes were a quote-unquote childish fantasy, and that in Mary's case had been written to attract attention to herself. Also in his closing argument, Lyons described the case as a quote-unquote macabre and grotesque one, in which Mary, who was clearly the more domineering of the two, wielded a quote very compelling influence reminiscent of the fictional Svengali, end quote, over Norma, who was of subnormal intelligence, stating, quote, I forecast to you that the younger girl, although two years and two months younger than the other, was nevertheless the cleverer and more dominating personality, end quote. Outlining the numerous lies Mary had told the police in court alike, Lyons also remarked of Mary's lack of remorse and her high degree of cunning. The whole trial lasted nine days. On December 17th, the jury retired to deliberate their verdict, and they took three hours and 25 minutes before they reached them. Mary Bell was cleared of murder, but she was convicted of the manslaughter of both boys on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Norma was acquitted of all charges. When they heard the jury's verdicts, Norma clapped her hands in excitement, but Mary burst into tears along with her mother and grandmother. Mr. Justice Cusack described Mary as a quote-unquote, dangerous individual, adding she posed a, quote, very grave risk to other children, and that steps must be taken to protect the public, end quote, from her. She was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, effectively an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. At the time of their, her convictions, Mary was 11 years and 6 months old, making her Britain's youngest female killer a statistic that remains to this day. Mary was initially held in a Durham remand home before she was transferred to a second remand home in South Norwood. She was then transferred to Red Bank Secure Unit, which is a young offenders institution in Newton Le Willows in early 1969, where she was the only female among 24 inmates. Mary would later claim she had been sexually abused by a staff member and several of the inmates while she was at this facility, claiming the abuse started when she was just 13 years old. In November 1973, age 16, she was transferred to a secure wing of H.M. Prison Style in Cheshire. It's reported that Mary resented being transferred to this facility, and while she was there, she applied for parole. June 1976, Mary was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison, where she took a secretarial course. Fifteen months later, in September 1977, Mary again made national headlines when she and another inmate, Annette Priest, escaped the open prison. Both girls spent several days in the company of two young men in Blackpool, visiting the amusements and sleeping in various local hotels, where Mary used the alias Mary Robson before the two girls parted ways. 
Mary was eventually arrested at the Derbyshire home of one of the men, Clive Shirtcliffe, on September 13th. She had dyed her hair blonde, trying to disguise herself. She was returned to custody that same evening. Priest was arrested just days later in Leeds. Mary's penalty for escaping was a loss of prison privileges for 28 days. So, basically a slap on the wrist. In June 1979, the Home Office announced their decision to transfer Mary to HM Prison Ascombe Grange, an open category prison in the village of Ascombe Richard, in an, effect, in an effort to prepare Mary for a, her eventual release back into society, which had been planned for the next year. In November 1979, Mary began working as a secretary, then as a, as a waitress at a cafe in York Minster under supervision guidelines, also in an effort to prepare her for her release. Mary was then released from prison in May 1980 at age 23, having serving almost 11 and a half years in custody. She was granted anonymity, which included a new name, allowing her to start a new life somewhere else in the country under the assumed identity. When she was released, a spokesman was quoted as saying, quote, Mary wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and to be left alone, end quote. Four years after Mary was released, she gave birth to a daughter. This daughter would be her only child. Her daughter knew nothing of her mother's past until 1998, when reporters discovered Mary's then-current location in a resort town on the Sussex coast, where her and her daughter had been living for about 18 months. This media revelation forced Mary and her now 14-year-old daughter to leave their home and be taken to a safe house by undercover officers. They relocated to another part of the UK. Mary has allegedly returned to Tyneside on several occasions in the years following her release and may have also lived there for a time. The right to anonymity granted to Mary's daughter following her birth was originally only extended until she turned 18 years old. However, on May 21, 2003, Mary won a high court battle to have her own anonymity and that of her daughters extended for life. This order was approved by Dame Elizabeth Butler Sloss, president of the family division, and was later updated to include Mary's granddaughter in January 2009, who is referred to as Z. The order also prohibits the divulging of any aspects of their life which may identify them. In 1998, Mary collaborated with author Gita Sereni to provide a detailed account of her life before and after her crimes for the book Cries Unheard, the story of Mary Bell. Within this book, Mary details the abuse she suffered as a child at the hands of her mother and several of her mother's clients. Others intervie interviewed are relatives, friends, and professionals who knew her before, during, and after her imprisonment. Mary and her family's current whereabouts are unknown and remain protected by the 2003 High Court order. According to Sereni, Mary does not claim to have been wrongly convicted and freely admits the abuse she suffered as a child does not excuse her crimes. Some feel Mary doesn't deserve the protection. June Richardson, Martin Brown's mother, told the media, quote, It's all about her and how she has to be protected. As victims, we are not given the same rights as killers, end quote. And that is Miss Mary Bell. So for this story, it is the legend of the haunted railroad tracks in Texas. So if you ever take a trip to southwest Texas and you like haunted places, you should consider driving just a little further down 
to just south of San Antonio, near the San Juan Mission, you will find the intersection of Villamain and Shane. It is here, right on Shane Road, where the haunted railroad tracks lay. This intersection is stained with tales of blood and has become a notorious urban legend for San Antonio locals. So, as the story goes, there is a tragic school bus incident, but isn't there always, in which several students were killed, and the ghost of these students never left and remain on the railroad tracks to this day. This legend has captivated people from across the country, inspiring them to make the trip to the deadly intersection to see if they can experience this paranormal phenomenon. One of the tellings of the legend takes place during the 1930s or 1940s, depending on the version. But according to this version, a bus that was carrying students home from school was heading toward the intersection. When it came to the tracks, though, the bus stalled out. That's when the bus driver noticed the train that was barreling down on the bus and the driver tried to get all the children off the bus. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough time and the train smashed into the bus and killed 10 of the students along with the driver. The more detailed version, which to some explains the legend a bit better, begins in much the same way. Decades ago, late earlys or early 40s, on an especially dark evening, a nun was driving a school bus filled with children home after a field trip. They were driving down Shane Road, but approaching the crossing, and again, the bus stalled out on the tracks. Most of the students had been sleeping, so she quietly tried to start the bus back up. It was then that the train emerged, seemingly out of nowhere, since its headlamp was out. It offered no warning of its arrival. It was too late to get off the bus. The nun desperately and frantically turned the key, making one last attempt to start the bus, just as the train smashed through the bus, cutting it in half. The nun was thrown through the windshield, but miraculously, she survived. The young children, on the other hand, were not as fortunate, being killed instantly. A few weeks after the horrific accident, the nun who was guilt-ridden and heartbroken returned to the site of the accident. She was unable to continue on and decided to end her life. So, she parked her car on the tracks and waited for the train to arrive. Later, when the train did, did come into sight, speeding towards her, the nun began to hear small voices that sounded very familiar. Just then, her car began to move forward as if she was being pushed from behind. The nun's car rolled to safety just as the train roared by. The nun got out of her car in disbelief. She began to look around for the good Samaritan who had helped her, but she found no one. When she looked back at her car, she noticed small, child-sized handprints on the trunk of her car. It was then that she realized it was the ghosts of her students that had saved her life. She felt blessed with a new purpose in life, and she opened a school for orphans. She taught at that school until the day she died. It is said that to this very day, if you park your car on or near the railroad tracks at Shane Road, ghostly children will push the vehicle to safety. It's almost as if they are determined to make sure no one meets the same gruesome fate that they had suffered. And as all legends do, this one grew over time. And it grew so much over the years that tourists travel from all over the country so they too can witness this phenomenon. Some even sprinkle baby powder on the trunk area of their car so they can more easily spot the handprints after their vehicle is pushed off the tracks. While there are many skeptics of this occurrence, one person who tested this legend was Brenda Pacheco, saying, quote, I put my car in neutral 
took my foot off the pedals, and the car moved. It moved quickly towards the tracks, up over the bump, and down the other side, well out of harm's way, end quote. She also did the baby powder test, saying, quote, I was so excited, I got out to check the back of my car, and there were tiny handprints, plain and clear and so, so tiny. The prints were so perfect, you could see the lines of the palms and the swirls of the fingerprints, end quote. Yet another person shared their account of their experience at the track, saying, quote, I know many dispute the legend of the railroad track ghosts. However, I was witness to one very indisputable event there in my late teens, early 20s. I once went over the tracks in my convertible with a new parakeet in the car. The bird had been chirping happily until we staged the vehicle for the track, when suddenly his chirping was completely silenced. It wasn't until we left the area he, that he began to chirp again, end quote. Curious about her bird's reaction, she decided to try the baby powder legend out for herself. Quote, I used the baby powder on my car. I had multiple small handprints, but these handprints did not belong to me, and I have no children anywhere around my car previously and was extremely meticulous about the appearance of my car, end quote. She points out, quote, when I, one washes their car with dish soap, oils from hands are removed so no prints will remain, end quote. Many locals have made the claim that you can hear the rumbling sounds of a train approaching, the steam whistle blowing, and the screeching of wheels as if the train is trying to stop, but nothing ever appears. Nothing is there except the haunting chill of the night. Another popular story locals will tell you occurred not long after the bus crash incident. A woman was driving down Shane Road late one night, as she approached the crossing, she saw a little girl standing all alone along the side of the road. So she immediately stopped her car and offered the little girl a ride home. Once they arrived at the girl's house, she was hesitant to leave the vehicle. The woman just assumed the girl must have run away from home, maybe after a fight with her parents. So she told the girl that she would speak to her mother. When the woman got out of the car, she looked back to give the girl a reassuring smile, but the girl was gone. The woman quickly went back to her car and threw the door open, but the car was empty. The seatbelt where the girl had been sitting was still buckled, though. Another quite eerie account that happened more recently happened one weekend when a girl and a couple of her friends took the trip to San Antonio just to see the haunted railroad tracks. She took many pictures and sent them to her mother via email. The mother was shocked to see a ghost in one of the photos. It was a little girl holding a teddy bear. The truth has been debated in San Antonio, both residents and local law enforcement officials being weary of the legend. There have been countless reports of cars appearing to move on their own, with childlike handprints appearing on the vehicles afterwards. Some have also reported hearing voices and children's laughter while at the tracks. But despite these reports and stories, there are no records of any accidents ever happening on the railroad tracks in San Antonio. Some think the legend actually came from another fatal accident that happened on December 1, 1938, in Salt Lake City, Utah. There was a blizzard, and a school bus carrying over 20 students, aged 12 to 18, was attempting to bring the kids home safely, but the bus stalled out on the tracks just as a 50-car freight train came hurtling their way. The aftermath was grisly and horrifying, with every person on the bus left dead. It is possible that the news coverage of the crash in Salt Lake became blurred over time with San Antonio folklore, with later generations adopting the story as their own, possibly. And then if that is the case, 
Wouldn't there be other similar stories throughout America? And how are there so many first-hand accounts about the tracks in San Antonio? Well, whether the legend of the haunted railroad crossing is true or not, is there an explanation for the strange phenomena reported by the many visitors on the spot? Could it be that the expectations of all these people produced a kind of energy that resulted in a paranormal activity situation? If you want to find out for yourself, you should make the trip to San Antonio. Travel down Shane Road toward the railroad crossing and experience the phenomenon for yourself. If you do decide to head over there, just remember, many visitors bring gifts for the ghostly children, like crucifixes, rosary beads, flowers, and toys. Some people have even left notes on the railroad tracks themselves, mostly wishing the children peace. Hopefully one day the ghost children will find that peace and cross over into the light. And that is the Haunted Railroad Tracks in San Antonio. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder, please. I really do appreciate each and every one of you, all three of you. (laughs) I hope you guys have a great weekend. I hope you have an enjoyable next week. And I will talk to you next week. Um, I know it's Thanksgiving, so I have a special episode cooked up just for you, which I am still partially working on. Um, But if you guys have any stories or questions or anything you just want to talk to us, you can email us at champagneandmurderplease at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Champagne and Murder Please, Instagram, Champagne and Murder Please, and I think there's underscores in there somewhere too. And on TikTok, Champagne and Murder, please. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, give us a follow. Tell your friends about us. Tell your, your garbage man, your massage therapist, your doctor, your best friends, your not best friends, whoever. Just, I would appreciate any kind of sharing. That would be wonderful. Um, and yeah, have a good weekend. Have a great week. And remember, stay safe and don't take candy strangers. Goodbye.